So before we get to our text of the morning, I want to give a, a quick word about interpreting Scripture. A quick word about interpreting Scripture. I think there are two major camps in terms of how to interpret the Bible. The letter of the law camp and the spirit of the law camp. The letter of the law camp says you just do the Bible. You read it, you do it. Uh, it's like Nike, actually. Just do it. Why did I look at Israel? Because you like Nikes or something? Oh, yeah, and you're wearing Pumas, so. So the letter of the law approach to reading the Bible says you don't have to understand why the command came. You don't have to understand who it came to. You don't have to understand where it was given. You don't have to understand when it was given. In other words, the letter of the law approach says you don't have to know the why behind the what. You just read it, you cut it, and you paste it into your situation and you do it. Sounds pretty good, right? Sounds great, yeah. We believe the Bible, we're going to do the Bible. We just do what the Bible says, said every cult ever. <laughs> if Gateway used a letter of the law approach, uh, Ray could not eat shrimp or bacon anymore. That Dunder Mifflin t-shirt that I wore the other day, and I was like, man, I am so hot. What is going on? Is this thing even cotton? And then I took, turned, ripped it off and turned it inside out, and sure enough, I was betrayed by a 50-50 blend of cotton and polyester. <laughs> but that shirt, I wouldn't be allowed to wear that shirt if we just did what the Bible said. Uh, our rebellious kids wouldn't be in time out from their devices. We would kill them with stones. Seems a little extreme, but, um, you know, you, sometimes, you just got to be biblical, you know. Uh, we wouldn't shake hands in here during greedy time. But pucker up, Jesse. You and I are going to kiss now. So it's because uh, we're biblical in here. Uh, although I have had men do that in a spirit of holiness, and it always makes me chuckle and feel a little bashful. Um, <laughs> You say, ooh, but the, Carl grew up, have, it was a church. And if, didn't, if they had some sort of bad gum disease and a stank rot in their mouth, you'd, yeah. right, Carl? Yeah. You just had to endure it. Oh, dear. Wow, Bunny. Did you hear that? There was a guy who liked the holy kiss in a, uh, in a way that made everyone, including the women, especially uncomfortable. Okay, sorry about that. Uh, when you guys enter the building, instead of saying, hey, how you doing, there would be a basin and a towel and you'd have your feet washed by me and the elders. Uh, men, if you prayed at all, you would be required to put both hands above your head during the prayer time. And sadly, most of us would be dead because uh, we'd been executed for working on Saturdays, like mowing our yards and stuff, like, like, like I would weed eating yesterday. So the letter of the law sounds good when you first think about it without much deep thought, and you think, oh yeah, we're going to take the Bible seriously and we're going to do it. But in reality, it usually ends up missing the point of the very verses you're seeking to obey. The spirit of the law says that any biblical instruction needs to be understood in light of its original, say it with me, Context. You just said, I didn't know what you were going to say. How am I supposed to say it with you? Well, context is everything. 
Context is everything. I can take a quote of something you said that's not wrong, and I can make you look really guilty. By taking it, what's the word? Out of context. The spirit of a text, the why behind the what, this approach says that it's the spirit of a text that still endures in its significance today, the spirit in which a text was given. The letter of a text may no longer be the best way to apply the spirit in which it was originally given. Are you with me? It's okay if you say, I'm not sure. So, for example, why? Why not two different kinds of fabric blended together? Is that immoral? Is that a sin? No, God was trying... Okay, somebody had an answer. Well, that is true that they wear differently. But I believe God was trying to symbolically instruct his people about holiness. It's a symbol. It's, it's meant to put in their mind that we are not going to blend God's ways and the world's ways, the pagan ways. That we, it, the, the, the enduring principle of not blending two fabrics is holiness unto the Lord. Holiness unto the Lord. Uh, the Pharisees, by the way, were they spirit of the law or were they letter of the law? They were letter of the law. So they always had a problem with Jesus and thought he was breaking the law. In fact, by their definition of how to keep the Sabbath, he was breaking the Sabbath. But by his definition of what the Sabbath means, he was fulfilling the spirit of it by breaking it. Amen. Are you with me? So they say, don't work on Sunday means don't heal on Sunday. And your disciples shouldn't be picking heads of grain while they walk along on Sunday. And he says, the Sabbath is about providing rest for people. When I heal, I'm providing rest for this man who's been afflicted by the evil one. I'm fulfilling the spirit of the law when I break the letter of the law. Because the only real law that, is, that applies in all times and places is love. And any command that was given was a specific application of love in that time and place. But now that Christians are not under the law because Jesus who gave it and invented it lives inside of us, Paul says we're not under law because we're under the spirit. It's not you're not under law because you can do whatever you want. It's you're under law because now you're being taught, educated, led, ruled by, you're in submission to Jesus himself. Okay, that's an important introduction and you will see why in just a moment. As we trek through Colossians, these are our next verses. Listen to the word of the Lord. Colossians 3.18, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and never be harsh with them. Wow, I'm proud of you. No, not one shoe was thrown at me. Great job. You're already doing well. That's, that's great. I'm impressed. In a lot of places, if I said, wives, submit to your husbands out loud, no matter what I thought about it, if I just read the words, there would be weeping and gnashing of teeth and tweeting, and canceling. So you're already doing well. 
Let's establish some categories, shall we? In the history of the church, there have been four major uh, ways of understanding the relationship between husbands and wives, or more broadly, men and women. The first uh, view, and it's been the dominant view in all societies of all history, is called hard patriarchy. Hard patriarchy. Hard patriarchy is the view that women are a problem. Women are a problem. And that men ought to be in charge of everything. Home, church, government, everything. And that human flourishing is best served whenever men are elevated and women are distrusted. That's hard patriarchy. Just to be very clear, I find this view offensive and sexist. Okay. The second view is hard feminism. Hard feminism. And it is the view that men, men, men are a problem. Very violent and angry and rapey. Men are a problem. Very greedy and vain. Hot-headed and short-sighted and don't listen. Men are a problem. And, the, and hard feminism says men are going to continue to be a problem. They've always been a problem. They're a problem now and they're likely to be, continue to be a problem. So hard feminism says, really the same thing as hard patriarchy, therefore human flourishing is best served whenever women are elevated and men are distrusted. You might not be surprised that just like I believe that hard patriarchy is sexist, I also believe that hard feminism is sexist. <laughs> Shocker. Here's a third view. Complementarianism. Ooh, it's a big word. It's a $5 word. It just means they complement each other. They, they complete each other. Complementarianism. Anti-disestablishment. No. Complementarianism. Can you say that with me? Complementarianism. That's the third view we're looking at. Complementarianism is the view that husbands and wives, or men and women in general, are equal in dignity, equal in dignity, equal in value, equal in worth, let me throw this out there, equal in how sin has affected us, let me, okay, and that sin has introduced distortions into what it is to be a man and into what it is to be a woman, distortions, sin has introduced distortions and created a power struggle that was not there before. Complementarianism says that the instructions given in the New Testament have an element, an element in them that reflects God's original design because men and women are different by design and those differences complement each other beautifully in a way that is a blessing. That's complementarianism, the third view. I personally don't think this is sexist, but some people think that if you say that there are any differences at all, that that is sexist. Egalitarianism, the fourth view. Egalitarianism is the view that since men and women are equal, 
in dignity, equal, in value, equal in worth, equal in access to God. You've read your Bible, right? Men and women are equal in access to God. Equal in access to the Spirit's power. Come on. Equal in access to the gifts of the Spirit. And since this is how the gospel works, all these equalities, therefore, egalitarianism says that men and women should be, husbands and wives should be equal in their roles within a marriage. And egalitarianism says that the New Testament instruction, like this one here that says wives should be in one role, husbands should be in a different role, they don't apply today. That, yeah, you're hearing me now, Carl. That those were just what Paul said then, but if he were here now, he would say something different. Okay. Now, I'm not trying to share that in a way of shooting it down. I'm trying to, each of these views, I'm trying to share as honestly as I can for what they are. Although I admit, I already weighed in on the first two. I weighed in and I said, hard patriarchy is sexist to me. And hard feminism is sexist to me. But I actually respect both complementarianism and egalitarianism. And I'll show you why. In practice, hard patriarchy and hard feminism are pretty easy to spot. Because they're rooted in unhealth. They're rooted in bitterness. They're rooted in distrust. They're rooted in believing lies about an entire population. And they are groping for power over the other. But in practice, complementarianism and egalitarianism are almost impossible to differentiate. When you look at it, you can't tell the difference. You can't. When you have a complementarian marriage that believes the husband is the spiritual head of the marriage and the wife is in the role of Christ in the marriage, you can't tell the difference. Any more than you can think that there's a power struggle between Jesus and the Father. They're equal in their divinity, are they not? And they're in love with each other, are they not? But the Father is the head of the relationship between Jesus and the Father. If, if headship is bad news for the world, then apparently Jesus is being mistreated by the Father all the time and has been for eternity. Stuff that I think about. But in practice, I can't tell a complementarian marriage apart from an egalitarian marriage. I can't, because both of them are rooted in unity, cooperation, honor, and mutuality. I can't, I can't tell. They know the difference. Okay. Let me look at some history with you guys for a minute. So in the context, let's lay out some cultural background. Who's, who's still doing okay and who just had a conniption? All right. The Roman culture. Roman culture. Roman culture was hard patriarchalist. Hard patriarchalist. The... Husband was called the potter familius. He had total legal rights over everyone in his household. His wife was under him. His kids, way under him. His servants and slaves, way under him. You beat your wife, you could get in trouble, but mm, probably not. You beat your kids, you'd get a high five. You beat your servants, of course you're gonna. You beat them to death, well, it depends what they did. It, it, they were so hard patriarchy that if the husband died, the wife was not given legal custody of her own children. You know why? 
Because Romans believed that women, as emotional, fragile creatures, were unsuited, unsuited to handle that weight of responsibility. Wow, bunny. Uh, men were married in their early 20s. Men chose to be married in their early 20s. Women were given in marriage at age 12. Are you happy? Do you like Rome? And by the way, men having sex with young boys was acceptable in Roman culture, but men having sex with adult men was not acceptable because that made one of those men a pansy woman. It's an interesting culture, very interesting culture. So how do you think this scripture, Colossians chapter 3, verses, verse 18 and 19, or how Ephesians 5, which says something similar but lays it out in more detail, how do you think in Roman culture when this scripture came, how do you think they reacted? Do, do you think, Sherry, do you think they would have been offended and surprised by verse 18, wives be subject to your husbands? They might have been bothered by 18 because it might not have gone far enough. But they, you know what I'm saying? All it says is, have a respectful attitude towards your husband. What? What? Let, like, support him? What? That's all you're going to say? Shouldn't you rather, instead of a word like submission, say, serve him, anticipate his needs, and wait on him hand and foot? Come on, guys, write a better Bible. I think that maybe how it would be how the Romans would have wanted it to go. But I definitely think verse 19 would have been a complete 180 for Roman husbands. A total 180. What do you mean love, cherish, treasure my wife and never be harsh with her? What are you talking about? Interesting, then in our culture, how does it land? Opposite. Well, duh, husband, love your wives, don't be harsh with them, but wives, submit, I'll kill you, Paul. I wish we could raise Paul from the dead so I could beat him with a shoe. I just find it fascinating, right? Their culture is one way, and so a totally different part of the passage is offensive and challenging. Our culture is another way, so an opposite part of the passage is offensive. By the way, wait long enough in what you believe somebody in this country is going to say is evil. Culture is always changing, and what we believe is right and wrong is always changing with it. So if culture, which is your own gut, is what you look to to figure out what's right and wrong, then you are drifting, friend. And you have no logical, rational, eternal basis for what you believe. Okay. Let's look further in history. That was, you know, 2,000 years ago. But let's try something more recent. How about the 1640s New England? Let's try Massachusetts, the United States of America, the colonies. It's not the United States yet, but you know what I mean. The colonies. Let's try some Puritans, people who love Jesus, they believe the Bible, they just want to be free of the tyranny of the King of England who has a church-state union. They want to be free as the church to follow the Bible, not submitted to some king. So they come to the United States with a dream that we are going to be a city set on a hill. Does this sound familiar? And we will show, well, actually, Ronald got it from the Puritans, a city, and they got it from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, we are going to be a people who follows the laws of God, and because we follow the laws of God, God will bless us, and the blessing of America will prove to the world the truth of the gospel, and we will be a guide. Sounds pretty dang good, right? Yeah. 
Okay, let's see how they interpreted and applied these passages. Husbands legally owned all of their wives' work and property. Just throwing that out there. So everything that you do and make is mine. Thank you. Appreciate all you've done. If somebody damaged her work, they owe me money, not her. And if somebody damaged her, they owe me money, not her. If somebody damaged my horse, they owe me money, not her. And if they steal my wife, same thing. Why? Because she's property, guys. But if you're getting offended, like I'm the one who believes these things, please quit that, okay? I'm telling you history. Stop looking at me like I did it. I didn't do it. The duties of a submissive Puritan wife. Brace yourselves, kiddos. Put your mouth guard in. The duties of a submissive Puritan wife. Housework. That's number one. Number two, child rearing. Number three, sex on demand. Those are your duties. Clean my house, make me food, raise and train my kids, and give it up when I say so, how I say so, because I said so, because I own you. Praise God, glory to God, shining light to the nations. Now, there's a lot there to unpack. I, I, if, I, if they were here today, I'd say, Puritans, you guys have really tried your hardest. I really appreciate what you're trying to do. And in some ways, I'm sure you're godlier than me. But in these respects, it seems like your culture has blinded you to sexism. And you've gone backwards. It would have been better to be a Christian in the first century than in America, in a town in Massachusetts in the 17th century. In my mind. So, I said it's important to catch the spirit of a law, and if you have a husband commanding a wife to obey verse 18, that's not the spirit of the law. And if you have a wife commanding a husband that it's his job to obey 19, in other words, if either the spouses is using the scripture that's given for the other person as a weapon to manipulate and control, come on, help. Doesn't that remind you of when the Christian emperors would march enemy soldiers through a river and, and say, hey, would you like to get baptized? If not, we'll cut your heads off, send you to hell where you deserve, you dirty rats. And then suddenly everyone was just in the mood to be convert. I'm not suddenly in the mood to convert. Yeah, it's death or get wet. I'm wet. <laughs> How many of those people came up out of the river and said, no, I just really can't wait to learn more about this glorious Lord Jesus? Because by doing it that way, you've actually made Jesus ugly. And by following these, these gender roles that way, you've made them ugly. Since he doesn't say, husbands, keep your wives in submission. And he doesn't say, wives, require your husband to die to himself and lay his life down for you at all times and tell him how he's not. Help us, Lord, can we just keep our... Can we, like I told a friend of mine the other day, how about you focus on you arranging your heart around Jesus to experience love, joy, and peace, and you let God deal with your spouse? How about your good fruit rubs off on your spouse, 
and you just shut the sermons down for a couple of decades. Because your sermons are getting in the way. So God's design. Back in Genesis, I don't want to go back to the Puritans, and I don't want to go back to the Romans. I want to go back to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Genesis 1, God says, let us make man kind in our image and so he created man in his image, male and female, he created them, Genesis 1.27. In other words, oh, but then I gotta fast forward. So he creates Adam, and then, and then, this is so cool. He has Adam do something he already knows is gonna, is gonna backfire, which is, name all the animals, to where he finally realizes he's alone. Now God knows he's alone, but Adam hasn't yet felt the, that by experience yet. And when he realizes he's alone, it's the first not good in the whole creation story. Remember this? It is not good. It is good, it is good, it's good, it's good. And God saw it was good, it's good, good. It is not good that Adam be alone. I'll make him a suitable helper. It's the word in the Hebrew, edzer kenegdo. Ezer kenegdo. The only Two people that phrase is ever used of in the Bible is Eve once and God like eight times. So if you think it's his little servant who gets his cup of coffee in the morning and hands him things while he makes hard decisions, well, then I guess God's your little servant at your beck and call too? No, it's his equal opposite that stands, stands facing him and completes him. God splits the image of God into two, male and female, so that only together, rightly, right, rightly partnered, can they express who God is. Now, I don't want to make too much of marriage because Jesus says it's temporary. Jesus said it was the Sadducees are trying to trap him. They don't believe in the resurrection, so they make up a story about a woman who has like seven husbands, and then they go, ha-ha. Who's, who's, whose wife is she going to be in the resurrection? Gotcha. Mic drop. And he says, you don't know anything. You don't know the power of God and you don't know the Bible. In the age to come, there's no marriage. You'll be like the angels. Interesting. So what is marriage about, right? Well, listen to this. Paul in, Romans, or Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 he says, for this reason a man, this is quoting Genesis 2, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And then Paul says, this is a great mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. So Paul thinks that the Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve story is Jesus and the bride of Christ. Listen to me. Adam is put asleep and out of his rib is made his bride. Are you hearing death and resurrection and the spirit that raised him from the death brings us new life? Are you hearing that we are made out of Christ's rib in that story? That he left heaven to become one with us. Paul says marriage is a visible sign of the eternal, it's a temporary but visible sign of an eternal and much more important relationship between Jesus and his bride. There's so much there that we don't have time in one sermon to unpack it. 
considering it's 1208. So I'm going to go very quickly. Years ago, I'm a little kid. I'm at a family reunion, and my dad is giving a devotional, and he quotes Peter, the Apostle Peter. And Peter says, husbands, live in an understanding way with your wife so that nothing may hinder your prayers. And he says this, in my life, what I have learned is when I ignore the counsel of Carol, I live to regret it. Why? She's his Ezra Konegdo. Unless you have the humility. Right? And I, I, I've experienced the same thing. Stay prayerful. Stay unified. Stick together in spirit. Move together in unity. All right, let me read a, a statement from our denomination. We believe that man and woman were created with equal dignity, worth, and value before God. Adam and Eve equally reflected the image of God and that God ordained distinctions in masculine and feminine roles as a part of the order established in creation. Now, my egalitarian friends would say, no, every distinction in roles came after the fall. So that's a, that's a difference there that, that we, we, as a complementarian denomination, we hold that. And egalitar my egalitarian Christian friends disagree with us. As the head of the wife, man was created to provide loving, sacrificial leadership. Not bossy, not I'm in charge, not do what I say. Lay your life down and die for her. If there's a heavy load, don't make her carry it. Don't be like the modern man whose wife has to deal with everything. Just a point. The wife was created to respond to that leadership with intelligent submission. So before the fall of humanity into sin, as recorded in Genesis 3, these distinctions were beautiful, harmonious, and complementary. The fall created distortions into the relationship between men and women. After sin, headship turned into tyranny or passivity, whatever, and submission gave way to, I'll do it. Fine, I'll do it. I don't trust you. I'm taking over. Or servility. I just do what you say. Because I just do what you say is not submission, is it? No. No. If you can't have a good argument, you don't have a good marriage. Yeah, I'm dead serious. If you can't have a good argument, you probably don't have the ability to communicate, honestly, what needs to be communicated so that you guys don't miss what you need to see. In Christ, finishing this quote, men and women are restored to their God-given roles. Okay, years ago, a few years back, I became, I encountered the Holy Spirit in some deep ways, and I encountered the church in some deep ways. I encountered some things with some women who were wronged by men, and it changed my view on some things. I began to realize that my faithfulness to Jesus meant undoing a lot of the damage done to women in his name by men. And I began to really try to process these issues. Through some clear revelations of the Lord, I, I ended up feeling very called to empower women. There's a lot I could go into on that. It's too long, and some of it's too personal, and you don't deserve it. Um, then, I didn't mean that as an insult. I just meant it's that level of private. That came out wrong. How can I fix that and make that better? All right. Then, some wonderful women of God wanted to affirm what they sensed in me in terms of a call to empower women. 
Because it's not good when the Bible has women functioning in ministry, but the churches have women so shut down that they're not allowed to do it, right? If the Spirit gives them gifts and they're being shut down by the church, what is going on that we've gone backwards in 2,000 years? Help us, Jesus. You know, anybody? Can I get an amen from something? So these women laid their hands on me to pray over me to affirm this call to empower women. The weirdest thing happened. The whole time they were praying for me, all I saw was men. All I saw was men, men gathered together, men in prayer, men confessing sins, men supporting each other, men getting humble, men learning how to be servants of their wives, men become, putting Jesus first and going deep, not expecting the women to be the ones at the Bible study, but digging into their Bible and getting real and getting accountable and holding each other accountable and walking by the Spirit and running after God and leading their homes, leading their wives and children in prayer and being faithful and extending the authority God gave them in Christ over their home to provide a pr protective shelter to create an atmosphere in their home where their wives would flourish and thrive because they have life spoken over them. They're delighted and protected and empowered and they're, come on. I saw this thing of men's ministry and, and the Lord said to me, the best thing you can do for women is to raise up Christ-centered men of God. And I said, what? Here I thought that it would have something to do with women. And he said, the best thing you can do is change the men for the better. Make them like Jesus. One morning we were in here and Jacob Borders was, was leading us in a song and he was singing. The chorus was... You are beautiful in all your ways. You know that song? And I was wrestling with 1 Corinthians 11.3. You know how you do during search. That was supposed to be a joke. Didn't work. 1 <laughs> Corinthians 11.3 says the head of every woman is man. And I was wrestling with that. Because it just felt like... I just, I, explain it to me, Paul. Help me understand it. The head of every woman is man. The head of every man is Christ. The head of Christ is God. And I was like, okay, so I'm supposed to be toward Carrie how the Father is toward Jesus and how Jesus is to the church. That just was landing on me. But I was trying to help me understand what headship means because I'm reading all these scholarly articles like these that are studying the New Testament, the Greek, the kephale, and, and context and culture, trying to understand and I'm in there and I'm like, would you explain to me what this headship means? And Jesus asks me, who, Tim, who have I been to you? And instantly I'm sobbing. Instantly I'm sobbing as I'm thinking of who Jesus has been in relationship to me. His, his persistent love, his grace, his kindness, his life, his mercy, his warmth, his strength, his affection. And I'm like, I'm instantly wrecked. I'm instantly wrecked. And then this knowing comes over me. Oh, my word. If I could be for Carrie, who you've been for me, then my headship in our marriage covenant would be such incredibly good news for her. She would have her shoulders back and her head held high. She would carry herself and she would glow. She would glow. Are you with me? Yes. May God make our marriages a living expression of the gospel. Amen.